Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, June 30th, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, June 28th is 4710. OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Philomena to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Philomena. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11 thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive readers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 traditions, please. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Oregon. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he expressed himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants, and they do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matter affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. 
six, an OA group I'd never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lets problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OAS sites ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need Always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Pass. Thank you, Melanie. Our whole journey through the steps takes us to step 12. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Here to share with us this morning about her spiritual awakening, her personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, is Michelle R. from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Leah. Um, good morning to the rest of you on a vision for you, and thank you so much for this privilege. It is a wonderful opportunity to be able to share my story. I feel very blessed, and I really appreciate all of you who contribute to making a vision for you what it is. So let me tell you just a little bit about myself. Um, as you know, my name is Michelle, and I am a recovered gutter-level, low-bottom, compulsive overeater. Truly. I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and I now live in central Pennsylvania. And I came back to OA in 2008. And because of the help of God, my sponsors, and all of you, I have released over 220 pounds. And I now have a life that is richer and more rewarding than I could have ever imagined in 2008. But my reality is, is that when I came back in 2008, I didn't come here to gain a rich and rewarding life. I came here to lose weight, period. And to my way of thinking at the time, my only problem was that I was fat. I had no concept of the program of recovery. I didn't need your steps. And I really didn't understand why a book about alcoholism had anything to do with me as a fat woman. Once you all had taught me moderation, self-control, willpower, I was going to be out of the rooms again. And so you can see why I needed to be restored to sanity. And over the next 45 minutes or so, I really want to share my journey through the 12 steps and paint a graphic picture of what it was like and the depths to which this disease took me what happened to me, and then what my life is like now. And right now, I really feel that my life is a gift. Steps one through three tell me that I have to admit my powerlessness, 
Um, I have to believe that a higher power can restore me to sanity. And I have to turn my will in my life or my thoughts and my actions over to that higher power that I call God. Now, I now know that I was born powerless over compulsive overeating and, and needing to be restored to sanity and to turn my life over to a higher power. Well, let me give you a little background so that you can understand why. Now, I come from what I think of as a typical working-class African-American family living in Detroit, Michigan, but with a few twists. Um, My family dysfunction started with my grandmother. Um, Her mother died when she was very young. And when her father remarried, he married a woman who was only four years older than her. And so she had never been mothered or nurtured. She didn't really know how to be loving. And she despised weakness, in particular emotional weakness. To me, she seemed incapable of consoling people, comforting them, supporting anybody who needed. I did not grow up with the warm and fuzzy grandma that many of you have memories of. Um, I feel to this day, that she is a woman that should have never had any children. Instead, she had 12, 11 of whom lived. And there were a lot of influences that shaped my family. Um, But one of the biggest influences was acute color consciousness. Now, this is, um, and I always say this when I share, the dirty little secret in the African-American community because it was perceived back then among my grandmother's generation, and to put it in perspective, had my grandmother lived, she died five years ago, she would have been 100 this year. So of her generation and my mother's generation, and even some extent now, that the lighter you were, the better you were. If you had curly, long, or straighter hair that wasn't totally kinky, that was considered good hair. And that was what it was called in the African-American community. She has good hair. Well, my grandmother openly favored the light of her children, and then their children, my cousins. And she did it in such a staggeringly, like I say, staggeringly blatant way that even outsiders commented on it. Well, my mother was her darkest child. My mother had short hair, and my mother was singled out and not in a good way. Now, all of my grandmother's kids, my aunts and uncles, my mom, cope with my grandmother's uh, raising in a different way, mostly dysfunctional ways. But my mother's way of coping uh, was to become extremely independent, and she shut down emotionally. She learned to wear a mask. And her, she never let on that she wanted or needed love or that her mother's treatment was getting to her. Now, this made my mother, and by extension us as we later grew up, um, the odd men out in our family, we were always just a little bit different, and then a lot of times a lot different. And although um, her coping skills, they were okay to get her through the time when she lived at home, but they would later go on to take a huge toll on her later on. Um, At 19, my mother got pregnant with me, and in 1957, good girls got married, and she married my father. Um, They were divorced three years later, and one more child later, my younger brother. And at six, she married my stepfather. And at six, that was also the last year that I ever saw my real father. I never saw him again after that. Um, my father, my stepfather, rather, was a womanizer. 
he he drunk hard, he used drugs, and he was a rager. And when I talk about a rager, he was the type of person I remember the home that I lit when we lived with together with him. Um, holes in the walls where he would punch through holes, um, doors took taken off of hinges. And he was frequently unemployed because his explosive temper got him fired a lot. So we lived through five years of this tension and this volatile marriage. And during those years, I discovered that food and a lot of food had mystical powers. On page XXVII and at the top of XXIX in the doctor's opinion, it says this, um, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Well, at that age, I had no knowledge or understanding of the phenomenon of craving or the physical allergy. I was very young, and I couldn't even identify any feelings. I couldn't have said, Mother, I'm seven years old, but I want to let you know that I'm restless, I'm irritable, and I'm discontented. All I knew is that my little heart was breaking all the time. I was afraid, I was lonely, and I knew that sweet things and high-fat things and lots of them made me feel better. But somehow I knew then also that I was different because even at that young age, I couldn't stop thinking about those foods. I always wanted more than the other kids. I wanted bigger portions. And even back then, I was willing to do whatever it took to get those foods. And there are a couple of incidences that stand out. Um, There are many incidences in my life, but these are just a couple of them. Um, One is the begging incident. Um, One of the neighbor kids had come up with this great new way of uh, us getting our treats. And we would go to uh, one of the neighborhood stores and we would hang outside, and this was when I'm dating myself because I'm 55, you could get penny candy. And so we would um, beg people. Well, it was a neighborhood store, and in those days, even in a large city, there were actual neighborhoods, and people still kind of looked out for each other. And somehow my mother got wind of it, and oh my God, the humiliation that she felt and the spanking that we got because we were willing to do that. The other incident was one a little bit later. Um, it was when my mom uh, had remarried my, married my stepfather and we moved to a new neighborhood. And a young girl on the street our age, um, her father owned a store. And me and my younger brother convinced her um, to write a note supposedly written by her father asking that his store clerk uh, load us up with candy. Now, we were all under the age of nine, and we were really surprised that the clerk could tell the difference between a note written by a three people under nine and a 40-year-old man. Of course, we didn't get away with it, but these, just show, this, these things just show you what I was willing, willing to do. Now, at 11, my mother divorced my father. Um, now she was raising by then three kids because she had my youngest brother. And she was distracted. She was working. She had to take care of all three of us. And she was dealing with her own pain, her own undiagnosed depression, her own loneliness, all her own issues that had never been resolved. And so she couldn't really attend to me emotionally and 
frankly, she really didn't have the skills to do so. And so, again, I learned that that food soothed me. It comforted me. It made me feel loved and nurtured. And because I was the only daughter and the oldest, I was given way, way more responsibility than I should have ever, ever had. But worse than that for me, um, because I always had strong verbal skills, even as a child, and I could put on a good front, and it seemed to all appearances that I was handling things okay. I got good grades. I was bookish. I was never really in trouble. I was never allowed to act like a child. I was expected to respond to life as an adult. But keep in mind, I was still a child. I had no control over my environment. So I took control in the only ways that I knew how to at that time. I was bossy and controlling to my brothers, and I was so mean to them. Um, I tried to eat as much as possible whenever I wanted and I created a very rich fantasy world in which I was a princess of all things. I was in complete control of everything in my world at that time. This is a prescription for disaster. And it looked, again, like I was okay. I was handling things, but I was a preteen. You know, what coping skills did I have? And so it was during this time that I came up with my own design for living, and there were 13 rules. Of course, I didn't know any of this until I did my fourth and fifth steps, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. But let me go over them. Number one, you, Michelle, are a victim. And as a victim, you should gain comfort through your self-pity and power by hanging on to your resentments. Number two, being validated and approved of by others is of vital importance. Without it, you are nothing, and the more you get, the better you are. Number three, your feelings should always guide and control your life. Number four, how things appear is always more important than how things actually are. Five, you are not worthy of good things. And I want to talk about this for just a hot minute. Um, I never, the only thing that I ever allowed myself to spend money to pamper myself with was with food. And I'll share a short story with you. Um, many years ago, I went shopping with a girlfriend. It was a mall um, sidewalk sale and lots of really great bargains. Well, she spent probably $50 and all kinds of stuff for herself. I wouldn't buy myself anything until lunch when we walked across the road to a well-known seafood restaurant, you all know which one I'm talking about, where I spent $40 on lunch. Unbelievable to me, but that was how I thought at that time. Number six, um, you are inherently evil. And I was told throughout my life that I was bad all my life, how bad I was. So, so much to the extent that I could not even look at a baby picture of myself. There's a picture that sits on my desk that I had to work to be able to look at because I was revulsed and repulsed by looking at that picture. Number seven, the use of guilt, shaming, manipulation, and criticism are acceptable ways of dealing with and relating to other people. Number eight, there is never enough of anything for you, especially food, love, or attention. Nine, 
I am less than others. And if people really got to know me, they'd know how much less I really was. Ten, a fantasy life is just as good as the real thing. Number 11, avoid big lies, especially if it makes you look good. But little lies, lies of omission are okay, especially if it helps you to maintain an illusion. Twelve, I have no boundaries, and it was okay for people to say or do anything to me. And it was also okay for me to say or do anything to other people. And number 13, I should never be angry about anything. Now, these six principles guided every aspect of my life until I came back to program in 2008. And you can see why I would need to be restored to sanity. When I was 14, I became a part of another religion. And if I was the odd man out in my family before, I was really the odd woman out then. And for example, um, because of my beliefs, I no longer observed holidays. And these are the types of rituals that bind even dysfunctional families together, and I was no longer a part of that. But because of all my new religious beliefs, I now had a new circle of friends. And the great thing about that is 41 years later, I am still close to many of them, and, and they're wonderful people. And I had a lot of fun as a teenager. I was very active. There was a lot to do in a big city. And in my late teens and very early 20s, I moved away from home like to live in West Virginia with three other friends to work in the ministry. And I got to travel. I got to go to Europe and Canada and Mexico and some really had some really cool experiences. But underneath all that was a depression um, that just kind of lingered in the background. I was busy and I had a lot to do, and so it wasn't at the forefront, but it was just there in the background. Um, I also discovered some new things. Um, boys, um, they weren't so bad after all. Who knew? Um, I also discovered uh, bulimia. Um, Detroit had some great Polish bakeries, and me and my friends, we would go out one um, after the other and eat until we were physically sick and almost couldn't even breathe. And here again, I was different from all the other girls because after we had eaten like that, my friends could stop for a while, but I would purge uh, by vomiting or using laxatives or diuretics just enough to get some relief, and then I would be at it again. I had no ability to stop, and my inability to stop scared me because the controls, the social and cultural controls that a lot of women have, especially at that age through vanity, I didn't have that. I couldn't stop for boys. You know, when we began to date and the other girls would suddenly begin to eat like a bird, and I didn't. I ate like a field hen, no matter if they were around or around or not. Um, I humiliated and embarrassed myself um, through my compulsive overeating. I can remember when I was in London, I had eaten so much. And, you know, the joke around English food is that uh, it's not that great, but I still, I had no conscious of quality. Food was food, especially if there was a lot of it. And I can remember being at a gathering and a young man in a perfectly crisp English accent kind of reversed or um, turned a, a phrase around. Instead of saying, forgive my friend, she's a pig, he said to me, forgive my pig, she's a friend. Ah, the humiliation. You think that would make me stop? Nope, I could not. And so th this is what it was. 
So I also began to try a myriad of diets. If you are from the 70s, you remember many of them, the water diet, the diet candies, pay and weigh clubs, the protein sparing fast, all kinds of books. And varying degrees of success. Um, I would take off 20 pounds, gain 30. This went on and on and on. When I was 22, um, I got married. I moved from uh, Pencil- from West Virginia to Pennsylvania, and that was a surprise to a lot of people. Um, I was pudgy. Um, I was the darkest one of all my friends. Um, I was not considered the prettiest one of the, of my group of girl my group of roommates uh, that I lived with, and the fact that I got married first was a shock to them. Um, we moved, and my husband is a great guy. Uh, we were both in the full-time ministry at that time. Physically, he was in a great shape. He was a runner. He exercised with weights. And he told me at the time uh, that my eating and my eating habits, my weight didn't bother him. Well, I now know that wasn't true. But what happened when I moved is that I no longer had my friends. I no longer had the busy social life that we had. I no longer could go, go, go like I used to go to to travel because I was married and, you know, I had a husband and I couldn't just pick up and go. And so the depression that had been in the background came roaring back to the forefront because without the supports that I had, the weight piled on and my life got narrow and narrow. And I can remember telling someone back then that food provided the only color in my life. How sad is that? I I think about that and it gives me a lump in my throat. Um, Also during that time, during those years, um, there were a lot of stresses in my life. Um, my mother-in-law had come to live with us. She had Alzheimer's. Um, my husband was going through his own spiritual crisis um, that lasted for over 10 years. I had a very stressful job. I worked, worked at a quality assurance specialist as a quality assurance specialist at a bank. And so as I headed into my 30s and the 40s, um, These were marked by my attempts to fix myself and control my weight. And I saw therapists. I took medication. I read books. I looked at articles and magazines. I paid for gym memberships for long term because, of course, that was going to make me go, right? I paid for pay and weight club memberships months in advance because, of course, that was going to make me follow the diet, right? I even went on a medical fast. And I lost over 150 pounds, but I may have lost weight, but I gained a huge head because of all the attention and praise I got. And as this disease is progressive, and because I foolishly um, thought that my only problem was the fat, I put all that weight back on. And you can't even imagine the hopelessness and despair I felt. You can't imagine the depths that I I came to. the the qualities that I talked about, those 13 qualities, the, the negative emotions, really grew uh, like mushrooms exponentially. I was bitter. I was angry. I was resentful of anybody who was living a life that I couldn't have. And I was under so much stress that I decided to quit my job. Um, that proved to be a very, very bad decision because in spite of all those other things, I still had a reason to get up and go to work, to clean up, to put on makeup, to interact with people. 
Well, when I quit my job, my life spiraled downward at a faster pace than I could have ever imagined. There was no reason for me to get up. There was no reason for me to take a shower, for me to brush my teeth. Uh, I gauged my days by what was on television. Um, you know, my time frames were when did Murder, She Wrote come on? When did Oprah come on? That kind of thing. Um, I was truly in a state of despair. And there's a part in the big book um, on, in the doctor's opinion where he describes uh, what his life what a patient's life was like. And I can identify like this, uh, with this. This is on page XXXI. And he says, and this is Dr. Silkworth, when I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis. In deciding his situation hopeless, he had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. And that's the way I was. I was living my life in a 10 by 13 room that we had converted. It was a bedroom that we had converted to a den. I had a TV. I had a computer. I had a telephone. And I very rarely left it. And to show you the level of how little I moved even, I had bought a pedometer. I don't know why. I have no idea why. Um, and I put it on one morning, and by the end of the day, I looked at how many steps I had taken. I had taken 50 steps in the entire day. Now, in those years that I was trying all kinds of dyes, trying to fix myself, I had also tried OA. I mentioned at the beginning that I came back to OA. I say that because I had tried OA in the 80s. I had tried OA in the 90s. I had tried OA in the early 2000s. And when I left in the early 2000s, I vowed I was never coming back to OA again. I was at my rock bottom at that point. Why didn't I want to come back again? Well, there were several reasons why OA didn't work for me. Uh, first of all, I just basic, basically viewed it as a glorified pay and weight club. You know, it was free, but, you know, that's all it was. The other reason was that at that time we had a sick meeting. There weren't people to sponsor. There weren't people even willing to take a phone call or take food. Um, there was no um, support of any kind, very sporadic attendance. It was a sick meeting. Um, the third reason was that nobody really ever took me when I did finally find a sponsor. Um, she didn't take me through the big book, and sadly, she herself relapsed in a very horrible way uh, because she was a bulimic and she was also an asthmatic. Um, her bulimia episode triggered an as asthmatic attack, and she ended up choking to death on her own vomit. How horrible. And the third, re fourth reason, rather, was because I was dishonest. Even if they hadn't been working with me with the big book, even if all the other factors were in place, I was completely dishonest. I lied to my sponsors at that time, and I had more than one in addition to the one that passed away, um, about everything. I lied you know, about the food I was eating, about the weight I lost, as if they couldn't tell. Um, I lied about everything. And so all of that, you know, I thought, what's the point? You know, I may as well go home. 
And so like that person in the barn waiting to die, that was what I was doing. I had a detailed plan of how I was going to commit suicide. Um, I was just waiting for the opportunity. My life, um, at that time, I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't bathe. I would go to sleep in clothes. I would wake up and wear them all day long, food-stained, dirty clothes, and I would wear them for days at a time. You know, I put so much work and pressure on my husband because he would come home from working a 12-hour day. He would have to partially clean the house. He would have to do all the grocery shopping. He would have to do the laundry. And he was under a great deal of stress and pressure himself. But I didn't have a a way out. And that hopelessness and despair I felt, having tried everything, the only thing that I didn't try in my effort to gain control of my eating was uh, bypass surgery and hypnosis. And I actually had considered bypass surgery. I had the appointment, but got scared off. And I remember going to my doctor's office. This woman had seen me through all kinds of things. You know, she had seen me through the the 150-pound weight loss. She had seen me through all the diet attempts in the past. And um, she looked at me. And she said, Michelle, I got nothing. I don't know what to do anymore. You can't, that was the final thud. Because if I felt hopeless before, having somebody like that say, I don't know what to do, what can we do anymore, really made me feel hopeless. What, what was there to do? And this reminds me on page 26 in the big book, um, it's the part with, about Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard had gone to Carl Jung in order to uh, get help, and he had spent a, quite a while understanding the inner workings of his mind and how his disease worked, and he was sure that was going to keep him from ever relapsing again. Well, we know that didn't happen. And here he, on page 26, he finds out, he talks to the doctor, and it says he begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless He could never again regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. And that was the great physician's opinion. Well, I wouldn't call my physician the great physician, but she was certainly somebody who I put in a position of authority. If she didn't know, what was I going to know? How was I going to get out of this position? As the big book calls it, pitiable and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. So what happened? How did I come from there to this point? Well, during the time that I was working, I also uh, started a uh, direct sales business, a cosmetic business, and it was the one that gave away the pink Cadillacs. You all probably have heard of it. And um, at this time, my business, and I'm using that term in, in quotations because it was no business. If I wasn't showering or brushing my teeth, you, could, you, you can't imagine me doing any other kind of business activity. So my sales director at that time thought I needed a jump start. I needed some help just to get myself going. 
so she kind of, she invited me to attend a retreat, but actually, and when I think about it now, she kind of kidnapped me to attend a weekend retreat where there would be people there training and other consultants and all that other thing. Well, one of the women that night who was speaking was supposed to arrive at a certain time, but she was late. And when she came in, she said, I was late because I had to attend my AA meeting and um, I didn't want to miss it, and I didn't want to leave early. Well, of course, my ears perked up because of my past experience with OA, and so I sought her out afterwards, and I talked to her because of that experience and talked to her about some things um, that I had issues with. I had issues with powerlessness. Now, my life truly demonstrated that I was genuinely powerless, but I don't know why I had a problem. And, in fact, I had so much a problem with powerlessness I don't know how many times I have lost count that I rewrote step one because I could not say the word that I was powerless. I also had a curious mix of pride and enormous shame and arrogance. My arrogance came uh, in the form of the fact that I didn't really think I needed steps two or three because, hey, I had a spiritual life. That was about the only thing I did have left. Um, I, you know, was uh, dedicated my life to God at a very young age. I had been in the ministry. What did I need steps two or three for? The shame was I hated being called a compulsive overeater. Couldn't they have called it something else, another name? Because even the names sound judgmental and um, insulting to me. And that that pride um, kept me from... Adhering to the program, even as I understood it back then, because of, because of that, well, she talked to me about that and what uh, powerlessness really meant. And she talked to me about the phenomenon of craving and what it meant for her as an alcoholic and encouraged me to really look into OA again. We talked probably until 2 or 3 in the morning. Well, okay, I took her words. And, you know, I did not want to be at that conference. I really didn't. And I know now, you know, it was divine intervention. I, at that weight, by that time, I had over 200 extra pounds on my body. I had um, sleep apnea. I had edema so badly I could barely wear shoes. I was asthmatic. And moving anywhere was just painful. And I didn't want to be there anyway, because, you know, I, what was the purpose? And so I wasn't ready. A year or so later on a meeting, much like this, a training meeting, she uh, spoke again. And again, she talked about her time in AA and how it had actually helped her business. And when she talked about it, then I was ready. Because I was at that point that I mentioned, um, you know, living life in a 10 by 13 room, so depressed all the time, so miserable. And so I decided I would go online because when I came back in 2008, you know, they had phone meetings, which I found out online. And so I started to listen um, to the phone meetings, two or three a day. What else did I have to do? And that was when I first began to hear the program of recovery in the big book. And I understood why it was important to go uh, through the, the steps and those kinds of things. Uh, fortunately for me, and I am very blessed that I found a sponsor who was a recovered alcoholic and who understood the importance of going through the steps 
who understood the phenomenon of crave, who understood the physical allergy. I consider myself so blessed to have found her because I didn't do anything like we're told. Listen to somebody who has what you want, ask them. I wasn't at meetings. I didn't know her. She identified herself as a sponsor, and I called her. And she says to this day, and we, we laugh about this, she had never been on that meeting before and was never on it again, and she doesn't even know why she identified as a sponsor. But her and I hooked up. She lived in Seattle, and I live in Pennsylvania. This woman would get up at 4.30 or 5 every morning to talk to me and to walk me through the program of recovery. I could not be more grateful to her because I feel that she helped save my life as well. As we started with the steps um, and started with the program of recovery, there were a lot of things I really didn't quite understand. Now, yes, she explained it to me, the phenomenon of craving and the physical allergy, but I got to be honest, I didn't really get it until I had been through the big book at least two or three times. I really didn't. Now, I put down those foods that she told me to because she asked me to. And I tell this story, too, um, from making phone calls and from listening to people on the meetings, there were people who talked about how their sponsors allowed them to have cheat meals every now and then to you know, hang on to their recovery, and every now and then to have a sweet item or a high-fat item because that helped them to stay abstinent. Well, I thought that was a great idea. You know, I wanted to do that. So I presented this to her as a possible option that I could perhaps work my way around this in my recovery. Well, she listened to me, and she said, listen, I will not sponsor you if you do that. I simply will not. And I was mad as a peahen because I didn't want anybody messing with my food. And, but I listened to her because I was desperate, and I knew how hard it was to find a sponsor. And, oh, my goodness, am I so grateful for the boundary that she clearly set, because I would not be here today had she allowed me to take that softer, easier path. I would be dead, and I know that now, because when you were at where I was at, there was no, um, there was no coming back from something like that. So we worked through the steps, um, Step four and five scared the cooties out of me. I, I viewed it, again, as an act of shaming, um, as an act of criticism, as an act of judgment. And because I was walked through it in the way of the big book, um, it, there wasn't anything for me to be afraid of. You know, the big book tells us that this inventory we do is to uncover the causes and conditions that have made our lot that have under, under found was that were foundational to the problems that we had that were foundation that undergirded that those problems that we had. I was to see a thread going through my life, and that was how I saw those thirteen things that I talked about earlier. You know it talks about that spiritual awakening, and there is a reason why they call it a spiritual awakening because until I went through the fourth and fifth steps. 
I had no idea that these things ran through my life. The first thing I mentioned on that list was that I was a victim, and I truly believe that. I really believe that life was happening to me, that I had no responsibility in anything. And when and as I went down and I saw all those things, um, how can I make those changes? How could I ask God to remove what I wasn't even aware of? And so I am grateful for that fourth and fifth step now. And something that really still even touches me to this day was the compassion and the kindness of my sponsor and the compassion and kindness of people and program recovered people who mentored me. Because after sharing with uh, my sponsor some of my deepest, darkest, most shameful secrets, things that I was sure that she would turn away from me, uh, for, she softly said, and this chokes me up. I don't care how many times I share my story. This chokes me up. Um, she said, Michelle, there is nothing that you can do that would ever make me love you any less. I was a child, and as a young adult and as an adult, I was shamed and criticized and judged for things as simple as because I chose the wrong shoe size because my hair wasn't done. And so for someone who would hear these things that only she knows. There are things she knows that my husband doesn't even know. Um, was huge for me. And it's a gift. It was a gift and a gift that I can now give to sponsees. Because I now had this awareness of these things, I could now ask uh, my higher power God to remove them from me. And, you know, there were a lot of things I uncovered. I talked about the self-pity and the needing for validation and approval. But some of the other things that I uncovered was the enormous amount of fear that I had. Now, as you listen to the earlier part of my life when I talked about all the fun that I had, you know, traveling and doing things, moving away from home, as my life got narrower, the fear took over until I became a person that I didn't even recognize anymore. I did not get my driver's license until I was 39 years old. <laughs> Can you believe that? I was a person that hated the job that I was in at the bank. And even though I eventually quit it, I stayed with it for years because I was afraid of what would happen when I when I quit or I was afraid to take a leap. And uncovering the level and the depth of the fear that I had allowed me, having that awareness allowed me to go to God and to ask for their removal. And the results have been amazing, but it also for me requires humility because those, that step says we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And see, humbly asking him to remove removes that he removes them on his own time frame. I don't get to tell God when he removes them. I don't get to tell him how he removes them. I don't care. Uh, get to tell him if I like or don't like them. What I have to be willing to do is to say, please remove this and let me be willing to have you remove them no matter what it takes and no matter what it costs me. 
And let me tell you, there are scary prayers in life that you pray, and that is a really scary prayer that I pray on a daily basis because I still asked for him to remove these things from my life, those things that are still there, um, and let me tell you, he does it. He really, really does it. I am so grateful as I look at where I was and what happening for where my life is right now. There would not be enough time for me to tell you um, the things that have come to me through this program. Um, I, I just really couldn't. So I'm just going to start talking about some of the things. That self-pity and that victimhood, I no longer uh, feel that. You know, it is remarkable to me that sometimes I don't even recognize myself because I am able to do things and act upon things in a way I never could before. Last year, my husband and I moved, moved to Costa Rica for two months um, to live, to work in the ministry. I was able to attend a ministry training school. Uh, the job that I have, and although things change, because I can remember giving this talk a, a year ago, and I talked about that I loved uh, my job, well, things change, you know, and now I'm ready for a change. And in the past, I fumed, I complained to everybody, I, I felt self-pity, I cried, I moaned and whined. Now, okay, you want to get another job, Michelle, a new career? I've started working on my resume. I've met with an employment counselor. I've investigated other um, options. I am a woman that no longer acts on her feelings. I act out of principle. And so the principle that I have learned over and over again in program is that God rewards action and not intention. You know, I was always thinking about God trying to do things, but now I act. I do the things that I want to do to make my life happen. And some of the things that have happened, some of the dreams that have happened for me, um, I had always wanted to uh, walk a marathon. My knees are so bad as a result of the, of the weight gain and the weight that I carry for so long that I could um, not walk, run rather. Well, in September of last year and on May 5th of this year, I completed two half marathons. I walked for 13.1 miles on both of those occasions. I, it boggles my mind that I am a woman that literally could not walk to the mailbox, that in a day would only walk 50 steps, that I could complete and walk 13.1 miles twice. I have always loved writing and wanted to write, and I have written an article for Lifeline that was published. I have submitted another article. Um, I have written for my um, intergroup newsletter. I've written an article that was published there. I, write a, I wrote last year a weekly post uh, for an online group that I had. What a privilege and a gift that, that I have had. My husband and I have started uh, very, very recently to take uh, Spanish lessons because next year uh, we plan to go to South America. These are dreams that I have never um, can even imagine. But more importantly than all those things 
are the relationships that that have healed as a result of this program. You know, in my efforts to control everything, to, to go from being princess of all things in my fantasies to being queen of all things in my life, I made my husband's life miserable because I wanted to control everything. I wanted to control how he ate, how he acted, his facial expressions, how he drove. And when I let go and let up, it is remarkable how much he changed. He became a different person because I was a different person. But I didn't see that in my relationships um, with him or anybody else because I was a victim. And when my entire world was okay, then I would be okay. My relationships have healed as a result of the steps about the making of amends. I made amends to my mom. I made amends to my brothers. I made amends to friendships. And I want to tell you about one because it's interesting to me, and it also reinforces what the big book talks about, the, the futility of hanging on to resentments. There was a woman that went to my congregation that had said some very unkind things to me about my weight. And I abruptly, we had been very close, and I abruptly ended my friendship with her. Now, in my congregation, we had meetings at that time three times a week, and now we're down to two times a week. And I made a big deal out of ignoring her. She was on my mind all the time. I, I thought about it all the time. When I went to make amends to her, she didn't even notice. Uh, not she didn't. Well, no, let me say she. She knew and she noticed that I had abruptly um, cut her out of her life, but she never understood why. She never knew why. I thought I was punishing her. I thought she knew that what she said hurt me, and that she was punishing, being punished, and she felt bad about it. She had no clue. She didn't even remember the incident, and, and that. I hung on to this for years, taking up valuable mental space in my head and to someone who who had no awareness of what was going on. I feel a lightness in my being from practicing steps 10 through 12. They're my favorite steps, and I'm going to be wrapping up soon, but I can't... um, I can't end without talking about my favorite step, steps 10 through 12. In step 10, I learned to keep the drain unclogged because having gone through steps 1 through 9, without the daily unclogging by doing step 10 through our continuous inventory, I would have it all build back up, my ego, all that built back up. And so I love the idea of the spot check 10th step. My uh, sponsor, I send them to her by 10th steps. Um, I'm sorry, by text. Um, she will remind me, well, who did you serve as a result of that information um, on that four-step process, I believe on page 86, to tell someone to pray about it, to ask that it be removed, to make amends, and then to turn your attention to someone you can help. That is life-changing to me. It works every single time. And I don't know how many times I tell sponsees about it and how many times in a day that I do it. Step 11, uh, my morning meditation and my evening review, again, give me a clean, fresh slate every night. I go to sleep with my head on the pillow feeling uh, contented 
and at peace and serene. And I used to wonder in the big book why they had the first part, which is the nightly review, before they did the morning meditation. And I heard a speaker say, well, that was because having gone through all those questions, was I kind, was I loving, uh, you know, was there anything that I needed to talk to somebody about? I now had my marching orders for the next day because the, the next day it tells us to consider our day's activities. Well, my day's activities begin with me cleaning any wreckage up from the night bef- from the day before. And so that period of meditation that I do on a morning base or every morning helps me with that. In step 12, by carrying the message, I consider sponsorship a gift. I love my sponsees. These are amazing women, and they are such a gift in my life. And they, too, as Bill W. knew in those early first 100, knew that it is through sponsorship that um, I am I'm saved on a daily basis. My life has not been without challenges. Um, and I will tell you this. I hesitated to say this, but I, I will tell you this because, this, again, is part of that shame. Because I'm 55, I am also dealing with some hormonal changes as a result of menopause. And last year, the middle to um, the early part of this year, I went through a horrific depression, horrific. And I couldn't figure it out because I had things to look forward to. My life was great. I did not understand it. I would wake up with those old feelings that I used to have, and, I, and I, it, it really threw me for a loop. I, you know, I wasn't happy, joyous, and free. What, what, what was the problem here? And I sat talking with a friend who made me call my doctor. And my doctor listened to me, and she says, Michelle, you are not a negative person. You can do 12 steps, and she's very respectful of my 12-step journey. But if you are dealing with hormonal changes, if you are dealing with wonky chemicals in your brain, you may need a medical intervention. And I did, and it helped. And in addition to all that, I also this year um, have dealt with other changes. Um, My mother has Alzheimer's, and she is in the end stages of Alzheimer's. At the um, nursing home where she lives in, she has been, um, they have asked us to consider putting her on hospice care. Uh, She has been hospitalized three times in this last year, and in fact, she's in the hospital right now because of infections. My brother, the one that conspired with me to write this note um, to um, our friend's father's store, um, deals with our disease. He is in a nursing home right now, weighing nearly 600 pounds um, with our disease. He had to be removed from his home to be taken to the nursing home on a tarp pulled by eight Detroit firemen to get him there. This year, um, early this year, um, and in May, two very dear friends, women that I've known for many years, one of them that I've grown up with, have lost children. One had a daughter who died in a car crash six weeks after her wedding. The other one had a son who was 30 years old who died from our disease. He weighed 490 pounds and died from the results of our disease. My husband deals with um, a a chronic disease that is not life-threatening, but it does hamper his life. How does the program of recovery help me through all of this? 
You know, one of the things that when I was in the room uh, listening on phone meetings, I, I would hear people talk about, oh, I relapsed when I was listening to meetings that weren't focused on recovery, and I should say that. Um, I relapsed because this happened, and I relapsed because that happened. And I remember reading this on page 14 and 15 of the big book. Bill W. says, Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Well, what I realized, if I only have a program when things are going well, then I don't have a program. Program helps us keep going when things are going the way, not going the way that we want them to go. This program of recovery has helped me to stay continuously in action. See, during all this time, when I was dealing with the depression, when I was dealing with the, the sadness and grief of friends, when I was dealing with my mother's illness, I still went to meetings. I still sponsored other people. I still called my sponsor. I still did all the things that I needed to do. I still did my morning meditation and evening review, all the things that I needed to do. And I experienced the difference between joy and, and sometimes happiness, because sometimes joy is that feeling that we have of serenity and contentment, even in the face of all those things. I could not be more grateful for this program of recovery. And I want to close um, with this final message on, on page 106 of the AA12 in 12. And it says here, he has been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. He has been set on a path which tells him he's really going somewhere, that life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed because he has laid hold of a source of strength which in one way or another he had hitherto denied himself. He finds himself in a position of degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. What he has received is a free gift, and yet usually, at least in some small part, he has made himself ready to receive it. Because of the gift of desperation, I was then ready to receive this gift, but it required that I work and I had to work this program as if my life depended on it, because it does, and it still does every day. And I wish the same blessings for all of you. And with that, I pass. Michelle, thank you so much for your revealing and inspiring and beautiful story of transformation. Thank you for describing your personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Thank you so much. A message of Can we hope get her phone number? It truly was. Uh, Michelle's contact information can be found on the contact list. Uh, Michelle, would you offer your phone number this one time, please, for us? Sure. And I, I do want to say on the contact information, I am the Michelle with one L, um, that spells with one L from Pennsylvania. And my uh, area code is 814 Four seven zero two zero six five, and just leave a message. I usually keep my phone off, but I always, always return messages. 
Thank you so much, Michelle. Again, this is Michelle R. from Pennsylvania. Now we open the line for any questions you might have uh, related to anything that Michelle shared this morning, anything regarding the program of recovery, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi, um, may I ask a question? Sure, please go ahead with your question. The first person, please. Yes, go ahead. I guess it was me. Um, My name is Yvette, and I'm in New Jersey. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I just want to thank you, Michelle, for um, your share. Um, And I do thank you because you talked about um, being a member of of an ethnic community. Uh, one of the things that I'm curious about is what is your thought about um, the, in this particular case, the black community and as a group, our um, expectation that women don't need to be thin um, and that being overweight is okay. So that's my question. Well, um, I have seen the toll that being overweight has taken on my family and African-American community in general. Uh, in my family in particular, like I said, I have a brother that is in a nursing home right now. I could have easily been there in the same position. I have a cousin that at age 35, 10 years ago, because of the same our disease, dropped dead of a heart attack. Um, unfortunately, it is a cultural idea that has persisted, and the ramifications are huge because one of the things in dealing with overweight that I have learned is that that's one of the issues um, that contribute to a lot of the health problems that we experience as a community. Um, And so my thoughts on that are in carrying the message. I have to carry the message to my community as well, you know, that, that this is not about looking good, you know. It is about health. And it is about mental and emotional and spiritual health, more importantly, because, you know, there is a lot of spirituality in the African-American community. But what I had to ask myself is, if I am turning to food instead of God to soothe and, and comfort me, what relationship do I really have with my higher power? What relationship do I have with God? You know, if I am trying to control the world and take over, um, because of the the exercise of my character defects, where is my reliance upon God? So in carrying that message, um, I can show what it really means for me, what, what relying on God has meant for me, not just for the weight, but also in living my life. Thank Thanks. you. Sharon, I believe you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Thank you so much. And Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your story. It has just been so inspiring to me as well. Um, I did want to ask you, because you did say that your sponsor, you were in Pennsylvania, your sponsor was in Seattle, and I too have a long-distance recovered sponsor and going to the fourth and fifth step. And we try and get together a couple times a week over the phone to to go through this process. And I was just curious uh, how you did that with your sponsor. And then I really liked the idea that you said you 
I think you said you texted your nightly nightly review to her, and did you do that while you were also going through the process of the steps uh, four through nine? Thanks. Okay, okay. thank you, Sharon. Um, my sponsor I got up every day, um, 4.30 or so, to speak with me, but when we got to the part on the 10th, excuse me, on the fourth and fifth steps, we set aside a block of time, um, and it was a couple hours over a two- or three-day period, and we went through that at, a, at, you know, at that time. And that was how we went through that fourth and fifth step. There was, you know, I eventually met my sponsor um, when she came to my side of the world, but, you know, her living 3,000 miles away, there was no way. But so she set that time um, aside. Now, um, in going through my 10 steps, my spot check 10 steps, um, I am now working with a different sponsor. My first sponsor had some health issues and she was not able to continue. And my first sponsor also was very computer phobic, very technophobic. So she didn't do any email, cell phones, texting or anything. But my new sponsor does. And so what I do is text her my 10 steps. And, you know, when I text on mine, I can only use 160 characters. So I don't have to write a novella, you know, in order to tell her what's going on. Um, irritated at my boss selfishness. I want him to do what I want him to do. Have told you, we'll pray, we'll do service by. And that's how I do it. I don't have to go into a long, it was a dark and stormy day and he did this and I was wearing that. No, I don't. And uh, something else too, even with doing my fourth and fifth steps, you know, sometimes I used to hear about people and, and there are a lot of ways to do four steps. You'll find them all over the internet. The big book way is the simplest way and, to me, the most effective way. And if you look at the big book, the way it's done, they don't also go into long novels for what happened. I think I counted how many words were used for each of those examples, um, and I think it was no more than 12 or 14 was the longest words. And so very that was how I did mine. I talked about who I was resentful at, what I had a fear of, very briefly why, and what issues it touched upon. And that's what I do with my sponsees as well. That allowed me to go through this process in a quick and efficient way. We didn't have to take years or months to do this. We were able to do this um, um, over that two- or three-day period to be able to get this done. And at night, um, for my 11-step work, um, I nightly review, I send my sponsor a um, wrap-up. I call it a wrap-up. Something about me that you should know, I am a charts and lists and graphs kind of girl. I love charts and lists and graphs. And so I put together a little one, and I just go through the, my things, um, you know, any issues that I had. I commit my food. I follow a weight and measured food plan. I tell her about any changes that I've had. She asks me to write a um, gratitude list. I do all that. And then I do my review um, as it is in the big book, and I have another way of doing a review, too, as well. But that's how I, but that's how I do that. Thank you. Sharon, thank you for the question. Michelle, thank you for your thorough response. Anyone else? Alice? Alice, is it? Go ahead. Janice? Janice. Hey, Janice, go ahead. Hey, Leah. Good morning. Good morning, my dear Michelle. I just wanted to say thank you ever so much 
telling your story this morning. You know, I I love that you shared that this is a program that works under all conditions, under all conditions. And thank you for for laying that out so clearly. Um, you know, I also lost my mother to Alzheimer's, and so I am walking with you, my friend. I'm walking with you through through these days. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for being so thorough and so clear about how you work this program and what it looks like on a daily basis because you lifted me up, set me on my feet today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janice. Thanks, Janice. Anyone else this morning? Is there a recording uh, that you made of this? uh, It really made my day so centered and spiritual. Wonderful. Yes, I will offer that to you at the conclusion of the meeting. Anyone with a question regarding the program of recovery or anything that Michelle shared with us this morning, star one to unmute. I'm, this is Sheila. May I ask a question? Yes, Sheila. Go ahead, please. Speak up a little bit if you could. Okay. Good morning, Michelle. This is Sheila, compulsive overeater from New York, and I want to thank you so much. I, too, as an African-American, have experienced has had quite an experience with our culture and trying to break the chain and change, and I am so ever grateful for that. Um, I guess the question was, has been for me, as I change and branch off, I have found that I have lost many people, relationships, as I continue to change and try to do things differently. How did you do that? How did you deal with that? Or did you have to deal with that? Or did you just embrace the recovered people that was coming into your life? I I didn't um, lose people, um, but as I changed, my relationships changed. And oddly, well, I guess it isn't oddly enough. A lot of times it was for the better. In fact, it was mostly for the better. I talked about my husband. But um, the other thing is that I learned to set healthier boundaries around my relationships with people. You know, that was one of my list of 13 things. I had no boundaries. And so that means two things. One is that I was all up in your business and trying to control you. And I allowed you to be all up in my business, allowing you to control me. Um, And so what I had to do was step back and allow people to be who they were. You know, the world... My whole life depended on you acting the way I wanted you to act. And I had to allow you to be, however imperfectly, to be who you were. You were on your own journey. And I had to let you take that journey and allow and step back and just focus on my own spiritual demonstration and my own spiritual journey. And, you know, one of the things the big book talks about, it talks about resentments and how when we are allowing ourselves um, to stew in those resentments, um, the world and its people really had us under their control. And, man, that was really true in my case. I, I was controlled by the by the whims of circumstance and the whims of people. And so by stepping back and having healthier boundaries, and sometimes those boundaries um, are uncomfortable for me to set. And I'll give you an example, if I may. Um, I love my boss. My boss is great. We get along wonderfully. But on about a month ago, he did something as I left work that totally crossed the line and totally, you know, uh, crossed over a boundary. 
I was on my way out. I went home. On the way home, that 15-minute drive, I thought about it and thought about it. And I knew I was going to have to address it because what does one of the wrap-up questions say on step 11? Is there something that we need to talk about with someone? So I said to myself, oh, okay, wait till Monday. But you know what? That question kept nagging at me. And I called him when I got home and I said, you crossed a boundary and told him why, told him why I didn't appreciate that. The old Michelle would have never done that. The old Michelle would have stewed in it, and then when Monday came, she would have decided, oh, what's the use, and then stewed some more, and then she would have eaten. When I hung up that phone, I felt lighthearted. There was a physical feeling of joy in my heart because I set a boundary. And what that did and what it has done in other relationships, setting healthy boundaries, focusing on myself, not trying to control people, not trying to impress them, not trying to um, getting them to provide something that I needed, has changed my relationships all for the better. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Sheila. Who's next? Star one to unmute if you'd like to pose a question to our speaker this morning, Michelle. This is Paula. Hey, Paula, go ahead. Hi. This is a, a question and uh, first a comment. And the comment is, I had the opportunity, an opportunity it was, to hear you last year. So when you started speaking this morning, I said, oh, oh, this is wonderful. I felt like an old friend had come back, and I had the opportunity to speak with you before that when you were going to on your trip. But what amazed me was, yeah, the strength of your program, it amazed me a year ago, but that it was still stronger, even stronger. And then you said, of all the things that happened during the year, what happened was life itself. And I just wanted to say thank you. Because until we realized that and that realization when I heard you, and life happened also here. And I tell you, I realized when the bright spots to reach out, to call the newcomer, to call a sponsee, even bring on another sponsee to work with the steps again. But the question I have for you, Michelle, is, okay, I think I believe I'm, I'm limited by time. And I want to be able to be the best sponsor I can be and sponsee and what. what but I'm finding to, to receive all these. How do you find the time? Bless you. And if you've got an inkling or an, an, an idea, let me, let me go with it. So um, even the way you do your program, Michelle, I'm going to stop now because I want to listen, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I have to make a confession to you, Paula. Uh, yesterday I attended our inner group workshop, and they had a sponsorship, and that was my question. How do you fit the time in for sponsees? <laughs> I have um, sponsees right now, and I love them, and, you know, I love working with them, but I would like to have more. Um, the problem for me has been, because I want to carry that message, I'm so grateful, and um, the problem for me has been learning to balance, and so finding the time um, has been a little challenging, I have to admit. One of the things that I have done um, 
is to think in terms of maybe spending less time with people who are more established. And in fact, I spoke recently to a Vision for You member who told me how she sponsors, and I got to call her again to get more information about it. That is, the program stuff just weaves in and out of my life. Um, I don't set aside time. To be honest with you, my nightly review, writing everything, takes about a half hour. My morning meditation takes about a half hour. Um, the 10 steps, I go to the bathroom when I'm dealing with something at work. Um, I'll just, if I'm in a car driving, I'll quick, I'll, I'm usually, my husband's usually driving um, when we're together. I'll do it then um, because they can be done by text. I do that. Um, um, I make a program call on the go, thank goodness for cell phones, because I do try to call one person a day just because I enjoy doing that. I enjoy speaking to other OAers. It's just weaved in and out of my life. And after five years, it's just become such a part of it that I don't have to think in terms of just doing it. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you, Paula, um, my challenge in doing my spiritual discipline, so to speak, isn't in doing them. It is in doing them in a quality way. Because when you get busy, it's easy to kind of do things kind of half-hearted, halfway. And what does the big book tell us? Half measures avail us nothing. And so I have to make sure that I set a time and I have to get up early to do it. And in order for me to get up early to do my morning meditation, I have to go to bed earlier or I won't get it done or I'll do it in a halfway measure. At night, I have to cut off the TV, cut off the computer and say, okay, I got to work on this nightly review in order to do it. Half measures, again, avail us nothing. And so this is as important to my recovery as anything else. And, and praying throughout the day, that's just weaved through. Um, my sponsor, again, is, a, is AA as well. She told me about a very interesting workshop she attended where the speaker challenged them as part of their Step 11 work to pray five times a day. And so I've been trying that for the last 10 days. It's been interesting. I haven't always had the right times that I said I was going to do, but it has really worked to keep conscious contact with my higher power. And so... Again, you know, it's just kind of incorporated through my day. But I'm sorry I don't have an answer on the sponsorship thing because I'm working at that too, so sorry. Thank you, Paula. Hi, my name is Jody. Go ahead. Um, Paula, I have one question. I kind of came in a little late on the meeting. Could you tell me how you do your nightly review, please? Thank you. Okay. my I, I do it in three ways. Okay. The first way is the big book way. I'm going to tell you it is absolutely the most effective way. It, it is just, it gets at the heart of everything. And I always tell my sponsees this because I do it. And if I don't do it, I get into trouble. I always pray before I do my evening review so that I ask God for awareness of what, what do you want me to see. When I have not done that, I am easily blinded by my own ego. I am easily blind. I don't see what I need to see, so I always pray. And sometimes I pray during the process. I'm not getting this. And so I use the questions that are on page, I think it's 86 those questions are. And those are the, are you kind? Are you, you know, were you kind today? What did you do to help other people? The third way that I do it, um, the second way, I'm sorry, is 
and this is when I'm just really pressed for time and it's quick. I call it the four G's. I learned this at a, a retreat. Um, it's you, you list the things you did good that day. You list the things that you're, gr- you're grateful for. You list the glitches, the, the character defects, the things that came up during the day. And then you list your goals for tomorrow. Um, how do you plan to, you know, how are you going to pray about this for God to remove it? What are the amends that you can make on in this process? And then the third way that I do it um, is from a set of questions that are in the AA 12 and 12. And I didn't, I think it's on page 57. I have them written out because, again, I'm a charts and list and graphs kind of girl. And it is, I believe, on page, or maybe, I'm not going to be able to find it. It might be on page, okay, here it is, on page 52. Now, these are questions um, where Bill talks about, um, in looking at both past and present, what sex situations have caused me anxiety. Well, I remove the sex from it. And I say, looking at today, what situations caused me anxiety, bitterness, frustration, or depression? Assessing each uh, situation fairly, can I see where I have been involved or have responsibility? There's a series probably of about seven questions as you read on there on page 52. And depending on where I'm at, I will use that as my nightly review. But again, the important thing, no matter how you do it, and I would encourage you to do it the big book way on page 86 because it's the most effective for me, my experience, strength, and hope on this matter is that it has always proved very valuable for me to pray before I do it. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning before we wrap up? Any questions? Any questions for Michelle this morning regarding the program of recovery or anything that she shared in her story of transformation? Star one to unmute. This is Susan. Susan, your turn. Thanks so much. Hi, Michelle. It was so wonderful to hear your story. I've actually heard it before, but hearing it again was quite a privilege. I particularly love the principles that you lived by before recovery. It's a great contrast to look at those, a different way of looking at it versus the principles uh, that were were taught uh, spiritual principles in recovery. My question is how you worked uh, your sh- around your shame through, use the steps to work around your shame, work through your shame. Thanks. Uh, may I ask Susan shame in what area? Because I had a shame in a lot of areas. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever, however you choose to, wherever you choose to focus. One of the biggest um helps to that. Well, there were a couple things. Um, One is my fourth and fifth step. Because of the loving witness that I received through my sponsorship, through my sponsor, she helped me to see that I wasn't deflawed. I wasn't this awful person. I was simply human. I I was human, you know? And the gift of sponsoring others has given me that because I see humanness in everyone. You know, um, people think, we think we're so terminally unique, and I think nobody has ever done the awful, horrible things I've done. Oh, well, you know what? I've heard a lot of four steps, a fifth steps. We've all done variations of the same thing, maybe different ways, maybe not to certain degrees or intensities. 
I'm part of the human family. And just because I see your outside, I don't know what you've dealt with. And so sponsorship and the gift of the fourth and fifth step have helped me to get in touch with the fact that I'm just a human being. I'm no worse. I'm no less. There are things that I needed to make amends for. There are things that I certainly needed to clean up. But once that's done, I have a clean slate, so to speak. I can stand before you. I can stand before God as a free woman. The other thing that helped me with the shame is just being part of a community and hearing my story told so many times. You know, when we share honestly, we give other people the ability to share honestly, to say what's going on. And so when I talk about breaking a chair, you know, at someone's house when I was doing a skincare party and having to use all my profits to pay for the chair. When I talk about having to leave a restaurant that we had waited an hour in line for uh, so that um, because I couldn't fit in a booth and the shame of that, and somebody nods their head and says, you know what, the same thing happened to me, that removes the shame of it. So that's why for me, outreach attending meetings, hearing recovery, and hearing people talk about what their life is, was, and what their life is like now is paramount for me to removing that shame, to deal, to deal with that, to see that I'm just a human being. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Susan. Thank you. Anyone else? Don't be shy. Hi, this is Frances. Frances, your turn. Go ahead. Thank you, Michelle, for your share. I really was inspired by it. I wanted to ask you two questions. One is, do you do most of your meetings live or by phone? Um, I'm asking this because I'm not close to a lot of live recovery meetings. And the other question was, did your sponsor who worked on the steps with you also do your food plan? How did you work that out? So those are my questions. Sure, yeah. Um, When I started off, I did all my meetings by phone. At my weight, getting around was impossible, so there was none. But when I had, um, after the first nine months or so um, of being um, solely on the phone, and when I had lost enough weight for me to be able to get around, my sponsor requested that I attend my local meeting. Well, I remember what my meeting was like the last time, and I didn't want to go back. So I did, and fortunately the meeting had changed. There was, um, you know, there was a good supportive community, and it's a wonderful meeting, and I really love the women and a couple of men who occasionally visit uh, who are there. Um, Food plan, my first sponsor did my food plan, and so when I talk with her, um, I would share my food because, again, she was computer and technophobic, so therefore I would have to call. When I called her in the morning, I would give her my food and report any changes that I had from the day before. Um, In working out my food plan, um, one of the most helpful things she had me do at the beginning was to write out my food history and also to look at the common ingredients. And she had me write out my food history with every shameful, embarrassing incident that I had had around food, every time I couldn't control myself, every time I humiliated myself. And what we saw not only was a pattern in behavior, but in a pattern of the type of foods. And so when I came to her with that brilliant idea that I was going to have a treat every now and then, she could see, well, you know, not only was she never going to sponsor somebody eating sugar, she could see that (laughs) this wasn't going to work 
given your history anyway. So when we put together a food plan, we're told to go see a medical professional. I did not at the beginning. You know, I simply had, and I don't think I really measured or weighed that much then. My food plan then was very different from now. It eliminates my binge foods. I now weigh and measure. Um, I now report any change um, to my food plan um, because, again, that's part of my uh, recovery. It's medicine. You know, this this, this isn't a diet. It, it's medicine for me. It's, it's a prescription for me. And so all this is part of that. I now do follow a doctor-recommended plan. There were some adjustments that I had to make. And, and I'm not going to go into specifics of my food plan because this is not the venue for it. But I did know that although I had put aside sugar uh, years ago when I started in 2008, I recently found out I have a sensitivity to too much fruit. And so I had to make that change. Um, and so... I have to be open as I change, as I'm going through menopause, as I'm getting older, and now because I'm exercising more, um, a lot more, because I'm training to actually do a whole marathon now, you know, my needs have changed. But again, I'm working with a medical professional for that as well. Thank you. Anyone else? Going once, twice. Hello. Get on in there. Go ahead. Who's this? Hello, my name Hi. is Leah. There's someone before Leah. Yeah, it's Shandle. Shandle and then Leah and then we'll wrap up. Go ahead, Shandle. Is there going to be uh, opportunities for available sponsors? We'll take care of that after the wrap-up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. And Leah, go ahead. My name is Leah, and I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm a grateful compulsive overeater. And I want to thank you, Michelle. You have touched so many areas that I really emphasize with, and um, I'm so, so grateful. But I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I had challenges, as well as you have, as we all have, and I knew that I was going to come up against my challenges, and I prepared myself for it because I know my weak spots. And yet I wasn't prepared for the other challenge that I had yesterday, last night. And um, I thought I dealt with it. And this is where I go. I thought I dealt with it, but I didn't. And unfortunately, I had a binge yesterday. And I'm trying so hard to get out of it, but I still don't know how to deal with it. So how do you, how do you, um, uh, I, I think I took the first step. <laughs> I braced my humility and I just decided to ask you. <laughs> so um, with that, I'll pass. What, what, what is your, I don't quite understand the question, Leah. Well, 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 um, the question is, I knew that I was going to face the challenges, and they're difficult. They're really difficult, and I thought that I was going to be able to deal with it, but I didn't. I binged. I binged yesterday. <laughs> um, how do I? How do I get out of it? Um, 
Well, um, I can point you to a page, and let me see if I can find it really, really quickly here. Um, I think it is on the chapter, hang on just a sec, where uh, Bill W. um, is talking about um, rats. Um, Oh, wait a minute, maybe that's, okay, I'm going to have to. Bill W. is talking about when we're going through challenges, that's the time to redouble the efforts in our program. You know, our tendency is is when we're going through challenges to slack off. And, and I talked earlier about, you know, getting lax, kind of half doing things. But that's the time to really redouble your spiritual program. And there's a lot of emphasis placed on some meetings about the tools, And the tools are fine, but the tools can be done without God's help. You know, in fact, I did a lot of variations of those tools when when I was in diet mode. But if you truly live according to the steps and are working on the steps, working on the spiritual toolkit, you cannot do that without God's help. We're told in the chapter to the agnostics, um, and let me see if I can find it here just real quick because I know Leah wants to wrap up. Um, hang on just a sec. Oh, good gravy. I'm not going to. Okay, here we are. It says uh, it, its main object, this book, is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problems. And that's what I have found that helps me through anything. It helped me through the depression. It helped me through the uncertainty. It helped me through all of this is to make sure to keep your hand in God's, um, put, put your hand in God's pocket, put your hand in God's hand, to, to hang on for dear life, to continue to pray for willingness, and to do the do no matter how you feel. You know, I was a woman driven by my feelings. Feelings mean squat, and they mean absolutely squat. I don't care if I don't feel like doing a 10th step. I do it. I don't care if I don't feel like calling my sponsor. I do it. You know, you just have to do it sometimes. We do other things we don't want to do. If you've been a mother, you have done a whole lot of things you didn't want to do. You did it because they needed to be done. And this is what we have to do. That 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 abstinence and relying on God is going to come from that relying on God. But redoubling your spiritual program, redoubling the efforts is where the relief is going to come and praying for that willingness. So thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Leah, for the question. And I believe all minds are cleared unless we have anyone else that has a quick question here. Star one to unmute. Okay, so we'll close the meeting in the way that a vision for you closes all of us. A recording. Yes, I will attend to that. One moment, please. Uh, we co- we will close the meeting with the way a vision for you closes all its meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164, the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us.
Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Again, thank you, Michelle.